Hello, surprise, surprise. I bet you didn't expect to hear from us so very soon again. Well, here is a little blast from the 2014 past. We would like to offer this show as a long form audio clue to our next show. And this is one of my favorite 30 second summaries that we have ever done. On with the show. Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. This time, it's a summary of the Hundred Years' War, fought for 116 years between France and England. Stay on your side! Stay on your side! Stop taking my stuff! It's my stuff. It was mine long before it was yours. Quit it! You quit it! Gosh, you are such a brat! You're not the boss of me! Yeah, I am! I'm telling! Seriously, get out of my room. Now! The... Hello, and welcome to the show. Today, we're going to talk about Joan of Arc, the maid of Orléans, one of the patron saints of France. She's credited with turning the tide in the Hundred Years' War, saving France from English domination. One of the really neat things about Joan of Arc is all the information of her life is still exists. So we know a lot more about her life as a child and her life up to her death than we know about Anne Boleyn. Because there are records. Not only do we have lots of records, we have lots of thorough records because part of her trial was, in fact, a background check. Right. Between then and now, there have been so much corroboration of the information that we can pretty much rely on it. So in lieu, note the use of French words, of a... (laughs) Impressive. In lieu of a placed in history, here is a more serious whirlwind background on the Hundred Years' War than the one you just heard. (laughs) This war trickily lasted 116 years, so don't let that trivia question stump you. The year was 1337. There were some parts of France that England had controlled for 400 years. Others came by marriage with Eleanor of Aquitaine. So you have powerful noblemen of England who were technically also under the jurisdiction of the King of France. One of these happened to be the King of England. Can you see why we might be a little bit in conflict here? Like, technically, one of the King of France's, quote, servants is the King of England. Hmm. Tensions mounted, um, culminating in the King of England flat out just challenging the King of France to the throne of France. Through the claim of his mother, which is what you get when you keep marrying your cousins. (laughs) So by the time we get to Joan of Arc's era, some 75 years later... Here's what you have. Three factions. The French are just flat out in civil war. Cousins, again, with the cousins. Basically, the north versus south, with the Loire River as the dividing line. So the north, theoretically, the legitimate people. The Dauphin, the king, the king's mother, etc. The south is the Burgundians, led by John the Fearless. So, so for the purposes of this scenario, the Burgundians are the bad guys. So anytime we say Burgundian, oh boo. <laughs> and the English, of course, whose King Henry V came over with his unstoppable hammer of machismo. Now, if you have not seen Tom Hiddleston as Henry V, pause, do a Google, observe the images. When you have recovered, come back. 
So Henry V came over, and laying waste is not too strong of a word for... He just laid down the hammer everywhere. The Burgundians saw the possibilities here, and they allied with the English. I might get something out of this. Now, the actual legitimate king of France is in trouble. I mean, he's in trouble anyway, because he has delusions that he's made of glass. That That, could hold somebody back a little bit. That'll hold you back, yeah. Um, Or suddenly he'd start killing people around him and forgetting he did it. He's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs right now. Alarming. No wonder the Burgundians got a toehold in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because you don't have effective leadership in the north. So the king was encouraged slash forced by his wife and some advisors to sign a treaty, a less advantageous treaty, I cannot tell you. His youngest daughter would marry this Henry V of England, and Charles could be king until he died. Wasn't that generous? And then Henry V of England would become Henry V of England and France. Okay? Now, if anyone had a problem with that, well, you know, we'll probably have a son. He'll be half French. He'll be fine. Right? Voila! Um, The king of France has his own son, which we all are forgetting about. He's still there in the north, robbed. Robbed. More on him later. But okay, whatever. Our ducks in a row. Can we please get back to some kind of regular life around here? We've got four generations of people who've never known an era of peace. Soldiers marching over their crops, eating their animals, terrorizing them, attacking the women. There's no commerce. There's no stability. There's no one alive who remembers it any differently. And that's the summary of the Hundred Years' War. Which is a way better summary than what I wrote out, which concludes with, I'm sure Beckett has this written out better. (laughs) (laughs) Mine was like the the Hundred Years' War for the non-militarily inclined. (laughs) But yeah, that was excellent. That was perfect. Let's back up a little and go back to the year 1412, where, in a little village called Don Remy, a little girl named Jean was born to Jacques d'Arc, Jack from the town of Arc, and Isabelle Romay, Her last name, hardly ever used, indicates that she may, in fact, have made a pilgrimage to Rome. Think how super dangerous that must have been at the time, and if true, there's some kind of bravery inheritance for her daughter. So Joan wasn't Joan of Arc. Not at first, just Jean. People generally knew who they meant in a small town. It was when you became famous or people needed to make a distinction that you might get a last name. Susan the Good, Beckett Brookside, Fat Henry. I'm referring to my cat. <laughs> Not Henry, Henry the Fat. Henry the Fat. Henry the Fat. <laughs> Later, of course, Joan was Jean La Pousselle or Joan the Maid, the Maid of Orléans, the Fiend if you happen to be English, but for now, (laughs) for simplicity's sake, we will simply refer to her as Joan for the rest of the show. So, records weren't really kept back then as far as her actual birthday, so it wasn't like every year on a certain day she was going to have a big party. January 6th. Now, January 6th is probably not her actual birthday. Um, It was given to her because it's the day of epiphany of of religious holiday in the Christian faith. So she was born one of five children to Jacques and Isabel. The birth order isn't really known, but there were three boys and two girls. Jacques was a middle-class landowning farmer. Um, He was the town warden, and he was in charge of collecting taxes and overseeing residents and animals in the times of assault, which Happened quite a bit during the Hundred Years' War. Papa had one of the biggest houses in town, which is still standing. That will boggle American minds. My house is considered old, and it's a hundred years old. The family farmed 50 acres. They had cows. They had sheep. They had geese. They had woods for firewood and mushrooms and pigs. Uh, They were doing okay, especially in this time. If you think of France like a big pentagon with the point at the top, don't worry me. 
occupies the right hand point at the top. Um, it's kind of out of the way. It's, um, like district 12. Like <laughs> nobody really thinks it's that important. Why go all the way over there to deal with these rustic farmers? Let them just do whatever they're going to do. It was an island in the middle of enemy territory. In fact, <laughs> Isabel, by all accounts, was a warm and kind woman. And her primary responsibility was, of course, to raise the children and to teach them the Catholic faith. She taught them their prayers and their saints, made sure they attended church and church classes. Joan was not taught to read or write because it wasn't a necessary part of her life. She had no formal schooling other than church classes, but she was taught skills that she would need, spinning and sewing and flock tending and housework, and, of course, how to flee from invading soldiers. (laughs) They were very steeped in that religion. Every Saturday, and I quote, they went to Mass. I thought that was something... Unusual Saturday, mm-hmm. they went to Mass. There was no church in their little town. They just walked to the next town over. That's how small her town was. <laughs> so Joan grew up in relative peace. There was news coming in from outside, of course, but the main work was just living, daily tasks. She was a nice girl who lived a very typical life at the time. She had friends. She hung out with them. Very typical girl. And so it went until one summer day in her father's garden when Joan was 13. This is when she had, she can recall her first vision. It was a voice and a bright light, and she really didn't know what to make of it. She was obviously scared and kind of dismissed it, but the lights and the voices kept coming. And by the third time, she started to believe it was an angel, that St. Michael, St. Margaret, and St. Catherine were talking to her and telling her to attend church and live piously. That was their message. But... As it goes on, she gets more and more information from them. But the basic message at the beginning was just to live a pious life. So you have angels coming visiting you. What are you going to do? The first time, of course, she freaked out. I've seen John Denver in Oh God. The very first time something comes out of the sky at you, you're going to be like, whoa, no, uh whoa. Up my meds, have a drink. I am overtired. No way. Yeah, so the, the the spirits had to work on her a little bit. No, really, you know, you have to gentle the animal first. I'm your friend. Like, mm-hmm. here's what we're doing. No mm-hmm. big deal. We're just showing up, having a little conversation. Keep doing what you're doing. Go to church. Listen to your mom. The problem is they, they have something to deliver. So eventually they delivered what was, in fact, their actual message, the voice. Actually, it was St. Michael, the archangel, commander of the army of heaven. He's the big one. So he tells her... <laughs> Uh, I have to tell you, you have to leave home. You have to go stop the English siege of Orléans. What? It's like a voice appearing to you in your living room and telling you, hey, make a rocket that's going to go to Mars. You know, you've never even passed ninth grade math. A comically laughable, high, ridiculous goal. Now, Michael is paired up with St. Catherine of Alexandria and St. Margaret of Antioch. Now, at the time, these saints were probably the kind of people that little girls should idolize. This is who they should try to grow up to be like. So her knowing who they were wasn't unusual. St. Catherine died in the year 305. St. Margaret died in the year 304. They were both virgin martyrs. Curious. Now, St. Margaret was said to have slayed a dragon. So her cred went down a little in successive generations. But the patron saint of women in labor. So slaying dragons, women in labor, I don't think that's much of a stretch. Fair enough. (laughs) Catherine was the patron saint of a town near Delorme. So, again, she would have known all about them. So Joan objected to this assignment. I'm a girl. She said, I don't know how to ride a horse. (laughs) 
You have got the wrong assistant. Au contraire, said the voice, maybe literally, since it was French, and kept coming at her two or three times a week. Michael told her, oh no, not only would she help the city of Orléans, but she would come to the rescue of the Dauphin and she would see him crowned with her assistants. Seeing visions wasn't actually an unusual thing at the time, and it really wasn't unusual for women to do it. It often helped elevate them in society. Um, so they were, I mean, they were viewed as this microphone for God. So it wasn't odd that she was hearing them. It wasn't like completely un- out of the ordinary. She's still having a hard time believing it. So, of course, there's the linear explanation. God sent messengers to enact this plan. The end. Or... There's an alternate viewpoint. Numerous mental and physical maladies have been proposed. Brain lesions, bovine tuberculosis, or my favorite explanation, delusional disorder, in which you have completely non-hysterical, kind of realistic, yet grandiose delusions. There is a This American Life podcast which talks about that. Episode 506, Secret Identity, where this guy believed so heartily that he was a CIA operative that he convinced people because of his own belief. But guess what? Guess what? It doesn't matter. It really does not matter. For the purposes of this show, all you need to know, and all we do know, with any degree of certainty, is that Joan believed her messages came from God, and her determination convinced others that they did too. But not all the others. No. More on that later. Joan kept the visions to herself, as instructed, for four years. Later, some information came out that the kids of her hometown used to kind of mock her for, quote, talking to herself all the time. You'd be playing, and one of your team members would be missing. You'd look around, and there's Joan in the corner talking to herself again. Are you going to play kickball with us, or what? (laughs) Now, she did do what they said. She did become a little bit more devout. She, She... kind of chilled herself out a little bit, but maybe that was her just getting older. But she went to church a little bit more regularly. She prayed a little bit more regularly, but basically lived for the next four years a very normal life. Well, when Joan was 16, 16, it was time for action. Evidently, we're looking at May 1428. She was told by the visions to go to this nearby nobleman, Robert Baudricourt. Mm, Yes, one does not simply wander miles down the dirt road. One does not simply... Leave home as a young woman and set off on an adventure. So, luckily, Mama had this cousin, Laxart, let's call him, who was intrigued and impressed by Joan's vision. She kind of had to let him in on it to kind of convince him to help her. And his wife was expecting a child. So what's more natural? I need some help at home. And so he took his young cousin to help out, subterfuge. So they traveled instead to the great man's house, where Joan laid out her case, her visions, her goals. Take me to the Dauphin. I have been sent to see him crowned. To which the great man said, not to her, but to her male cousin, you take her back to her father's house and make sure he beats her. So, you know, instant belief system, not in place. Well, Joan seemed very calm about this rejection. No matter. Before the middle of Lent, I'll be with the king. So Joan's living her life normally. Now, her parents had set up an arranged marriage. The identity of the man is not, we don't know. Um, But at the time, girls were usually engaged by age 13, and she's 16 at this point. Old maid. Yeah, kind of. The girls didn't need to agree to the engagement, but Joan disagreed, which was her going against her parents. She said that was the only time she ever did. 
um, the engagement was broken, but at the time, the, an engagement was considered a legal contract. So Joan was sued for breach of contract by the family of her betrothed, to be, to be formally betrothed. <laughs> um, a judge, however, ruled in jo- Joan's favor because he said free will was needed for the marriage to be valid, and she obviously wasn't going into the marriage with free will. They sued her. <laughs> It's embarrassing. Well, yeah, and that, I mean, Jacques was a prominent man in the community, so they probably really wanted their son to be tied to that ox. Like married up. Yeah, exactly. So in addition to breaking her engagement, Joan clearly sees at this point that she has a mission. She takes a vow of chastity, which seems like only something nuns or monks would do, but back then it was kind of a usual sign of piety. So it wasn't, again, it wasn't viewed as something that was going to be unusual. She just said, this is not for me. It will never be for me. It's like, hey, God, you have my body. You have my mind. You have my heart. You have my soul. Do with it what you will. So Joan had had to hit the highway back home. But what else hit the highway? The news. The word got out. There was a girl in Domremy with visions from God that promised that the Dauphin would become the king. Now, like I said before, little Domremy is this island in the middle of the enemies of that Dauphin. All this buzz, all this talk did not sit well with the boss, the Duke of Burgundy. Boo. Remember, Burgundy equals bad in, in this scenario. <laughs> when you say Burgundy, I should say boo. Okay. <laughs> Um, Which I'll forget, by the way. So, you know what happens when you start all this gossip, Miss Thing? I will send soldiers to burn the church you go to. I will send men to take all of the people's supplies. Now, how about it, Mademoiselle Visions? Luckily, most of the villagers had been able to flee, as they are used to this sort of thing. Not happy about it, but used to it. The message was clear. Do not use this person to start up a rebellion around here. Which still sounds like the Hunger Games or Catching Fire. Uh huh. The Mocking Jay must be suppressed. So the Duke of Burgundy probably did himself a big fat disservice here by attacking her because down the dirt road from him, old Robert Baudricourt, him of, you know, take her home and beat her, kind of sat up in his chair. Huh. If the big cheese, the Duke of Burgundy, thinks this is some kind of threat, Like, he doesn't want her activated? Perhaps I need to haul her back here and give her another look. Because I don't necessarily believe her, but somebody does, because look what just happened. So Baudricourt sent for her again. Now, her parents obviously weren't going to let her go. So pretty much without telling anybody, she snuck out in the middle of the night, and nobody knew where she was. And the rumors, of course, had reached their ears. They're not deaf. The rumors that a maid in Doremi was going to help the king and... The father said, I promise you, if your sister has gone to join the soldiers, I am going to drown her. Or if I fail, you need to drown her. Because the assumption is a woman with soldiers equals prostitutes. Those are the only women that were hanging out with the army. So that would bring shame to the family. And that would be a bad path for their daughter to go down. So Baudricourt did meet with her again. I can just see the skeptical look on his face because the first thing he did was send her to his superior, Duke Charles of Lorraine. And it is my personal opinion that he wanted Duke Charles to take the blame if she got to the Dauphin and it was this huge embarrassment. So she gets there and she's asked to perform a miracle. They say, if you can perform a miracle, then we know that you're on God's side. So the meeting with this Duke 
Duke of Lorraine is kind of shrouded in mythology. There's one story goes he summoned her because he was ill and she told him to dump his mistress and go back to his wife and he'd be healed. I just do not see that happening. This is a great man. I do not see that coming out of her head. At her trial, later, Joan said he did ask about his health, and she said, quote, I don't know anything about that, but if you give me some men, I'll be able to help France, and I'll certainly pray for your recovery, which is as honest as you can be. Now, this is a 16-year-old girl talking to a 65-year-old man who is a noble. She's just a country girl, mm -hmm. and she's being bold, I mean, regardless of what she said. That's pretty brave of her. But again, she thought she had God on her side. Well, and that, that last sentence does sound more like her. I don't know anything yeah. about that. I'm an ignorant country girl. I don't know about healing or any of that stuff. I just got this one situation that you can help me with. And I think throughout the rest of her life, she did a really good job uh, when people came to her and gave her more power than she really had of saying, no, I don't have that power. That's God. I do not have that. You mm -hmm. have as much as I do. Right. So that's, a, that's, you're absolutely right. That is definitely her style. So the Duke signed off on her. Her story was spreading and people were certainly primed to put an end to all this uncertainty around all this war. You know, maybe Captain Beaudricourt didn't really believe in her, but upon her return from the Duke, it was obvious so many people did or hoped about her, which is not quite the same thing, but she was kitted out for her trip to see the Dauphin. I mean, okay, might as well. A horse. A posse. A sword. <laughs> um, men's clothes for the 340-mile trip. Critically, for later, note, she's wearing men's clothing, which everybody agreed was perfectly reasonable. A woman traveling was at a specific danger, if you know what I mean, that men certainly weren't subject to. And up till this point, she's been wearing a red country girl skirt that's not going to be comfortable riding all that way. I was liking this part to the scene in The Wizard of Oz when they get Dorothy ready to go see the wizard. You know, she goes around and they fancy her up and doll oh. her up, but descended to Joan of Arc and gave her a sword and pants. <laughs> so not so fancy, really. The men who were to go with her seemed to have total faith in her. There are six guys. I think the simplicity of her answers was just very convincing. But Captain Beaudricourt did not have complete faith in her, though he was the one that gave her that sword. He actually had her exorcised before she went. Now, what does that involve? Prayer, obviously, herbs and spices. I don't really know. Probably holy water involved. Just to make sure the voice wasn't the devil, I guess, mm -hmm. at the last minute. <laughs> I can go back to the Wizard of Oz. Are you a good witch? I know, but you know what? <laughs> Think about that question. Are you a good witch? And then later, literally, the same person says, only bad witches are ugly. So, like, you had to ask her if she was a good witch. I'm just saying. That was a burn. Well, it's hard to explain. <laughs> okay, so that hurdle, that it's not the devil, that hurdle cleared. Off they went to see the Dauphin. We're off to see the Dauphin. The wonderful princess Chanel. Okay. <laughs> How many Wizard of Oz references can I know. back into 30 seconds? <laughs> so 11 days through enemy territory, and they were largely unnoticed. This is a 340-mile track. Even now, according to Google Maps, it takes over five hours to drive there. I imagine, though, if you had one of those, too. <laughs> yeah, if you had one of those tiny little French cars and a and a lead foot and a baguette, you could probably get there in three. And a bottle of wine. Heck yeah. Well, it is France. I'm not really sure what the driving laws are there. Is there cup holders in those little cars? I have a German car that only has one cup holder. In the entirety of the whole situation, I guess children aren't allowed cups. 
Which is probably fairly wise. Their cars are probably cleaner than ours. So they went through enemy territory largely unnoticed. However, there was a curious thing along the way. Mythology, again, there was, quote, an ambush of the Dauphin's men who were supposed to attack her, but never attacked her because, as the myth goes, they were frozen to the ground and could not move or some other story. But doesn't that seem more like spies to you? She's coming to see you. You could just wait in your house. You don't have to attack her on the road. You could just wait around. So what I'm guessing happened is he sent dudes out to say, what are we dealing with here? How many men does she have? Do we need to be setting a guard? Is this, what is going on here? What is this coming to me? So that's what I think it was. And so why would the spies attack her in the first place? Right. It It seems weird that they called in an ambush and they were frozen. Well, they never tried to, I don't know. Maybe they're just standing there looking. You know, they weren't. Or sneaking around. Yeah, yeah. Now, she is, she's traveling with about six men, so it's not like this huge army at this point. Um, They're sleeping in monasteries. The men that she traveled with really, really respected her. They saw her as brave. She slept beside them. You know, she's dressed in her men's clothes. She slept fully dressed beside them, but they saw her as a messenger from God, just the same way she saw herself. They did everything in their power to keep her safe. The Dauphin was kind of a mess. The Dauphin was not very confident in his position. Rumors had been flying everywhere that he wasn't even his father's son. His mama was a notorious free spirit, shall we say, after she had given her husband a legitimate heir, a legitimate spare, and now it's party time! Mm, Charles was the third son. His older brothers were both dead. And there's no DNA testing. Awkward. Mm. So he had, shall we say, an uncertainty complex, if not an inferiority (laughs) complex. So enter Joan. Enter Joan into his life. Of course, they wouldn't let her just walk into a room and walk up to him and talk to him. They had to set another test for her. This girl is jumping through hoops everywhere. The Dauphin is in a room full of other people, but he's dressed like everyone else. He's kind of hiding in the group. But she, having never seen him because she couldn't like it, look at his Facebook profile, <laughs> she goes up and walks right up to him and says, My most eminent Lord Dauphin, I have come sent by God to bring help to you and the kingdom. Like she picked, she picked him out of this whole room. Now, the skeptic in me says, doubtful. Because I've been at parties with whispered names before. Like, who's going to win? You know, you ask your husband, his wife's name is what? Hi, Regina. We've all seen the gala scene at Devil Wears Prada. There's two people employed to stand behind her and tell her who's approaching her to say hi. Somebody had every opportunity to tip her off. You are skeptical. Well, I'm just saying it's very common at parties. I I totally can see that happening. Been through it. I kind of like this version better. Everyone liked that version better because you know what? It adds to the mythology. Any little thing that can add to the mystique is kind of good. So let's just keep that. But just her going into this room, her getting to Chignon was a big deal. So let's give her some credit. (laughs) So privately she had a conversation with Charles that made him very happy. I would guess probably the second part of that message, I am to see you crowned and... She may have reassured him about his paternity. No one ever said what happened in that conversation. Joan never did during her trial, so it could only be speculated on. And maybe he had pawn plans for her and just saw her as the perfect 
instrument for them. So it did make him very happy, whatever she said, whatever it was, but not foolishly so. He sent for any loyal theologian he could get his hands on to examine her. Again, her straightforward answers were what impressed him. If she didn't know, she said, I don't know. <laughs> Honest. This is, she went through two weeks of interrogation by these people. They would hit her with what they thought was their greatest weapon. You are just an ignorant peasant girl. And I think I can paraphrase Joan right now when I say, I know, right? I know. Here I am. Believe you me. I'd rather be at home with my mother in District 12. I mean, don't read me. But God said, come here. So here I am. This is not where I chose to be. I'm here to lead France to victory like God told me to. So if that's your big argument, I know I don't belong here. I know this is whack. Give me an out and I will take it. (laughs) Give us a sign, they kept saying. And she goes, give me some dudes. Because the sign, the only sign I'm authorized to give you is, I will take down the siege of Orléans. I got no other powers here. I can't produce a bunny rabbit. Like, I don't know what you want from me. (laughs) Give me some dudes. I'll give you the sign you want. They sent back home for a background check, which meant going around town and digging up the dirt while she went to mass every day. She's a hard worker. Her conduct was good, except for that talking to herself thing, which nobody understood until now. You know, she kept it a secret, remember? They handed her over to the ladies for a purity check. Yeah, verifying that she was indeed the maid. Uh, Now, I don't know that I would know if I was the authority figure, the queen or whoever. Would I know what to look for exactly? One of the movies that we'll talk about later, there's an interesting scene where they actually do this examination. And this old woman who looks a lot like Mrs. Patmore comes in, goes behind the curtain, looks up. It is true. Can was you, there an anatomy book? I, I don't know. She's been riding a horse. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know how things are staying intact. But, well, and I'm not 100% sure of this qualification as the ultimate. But evidently, that's the last. Oh, well, then you're completely authorized. Okay. It's summertime. We are on the go in the summertime. We want to be outside having fun, going to the beach, going to the pool, doing things. And I want my kids to be able to have an option to just eat and go. That's what I love about Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is a food delivery service. They send you thoughtfully sourced, chef-crafted foods that are built on fruits and vegetables, so I can be happy about that. And they can be prepared with one step in less than five minutes, which my kids are absolutely thrilled about. You can fill your box with more than 65 different options. There's ready-to-blend smoothies and soups, harvest bowls and lattes. It's all in a single-serving cup. You store it in your freezer until you're ready to use it. What my boys like is that in less time than it takes them to make a plate of microwaved pizza bites, they can have a smoothie. The one that they were fighting over in our last box was mint and cacao smoothie. Less than five minutes, one step, single serving cups, organic fruits and vegetables, no preservatives. What isn't there to like? Why don't you give it a try? Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code HistoryChicks to get three free cups with your first box. That's promo code HistoryChicks for three free Daily Harvest cups at dailyharvest.com. That's dailyharvest.com and use the promo code HistoryChicks. Thank you. 
she's passed the last test. She might need a sword. Better sword than Robert Bordercourt gave her, which was really more like a like a sign. Probably didn't cut anything. Probably couldn't even spread butter with it. Whatever. You need a better sword. It was the foam sword from Minecraft. It wasn't the actual <laughs> Minecraft sword. <laughs> so she ditched the foam sword from Minecraft in favor of a better sword. She had heard of it one step back, and she said, if you send some people back one stop and dig in the dirt around here, you'll find the sword that I need to take into battle. And so they're just like, well, it's just down the road, no skin off our nose. Send some guys down there to, quote, dig it up. Yeah, whatever, whatever it is. To their great surprise and amazement, they found a sword buried in the ground, right, where she said it would be. A Mm. cool sword, too. With five crosses engraved in it. That seems like an appropriate weapon for this task at hand. What could be a better weapon? A miraculously found in the dirt weapon. That no one had seen except for the fact that. See, here's my cynical again. Well, I, I'm cynical about this one too, but you tell me you, you and I'll tell you mine. There is a soldier and like a, a relic hunter who had buried all his booty when he paid for some buildings to be built in that area. Any one of those monks, I mean, it's 29 years ago. There's probably plenty of monks for the longest lived of anybody. In these times, by the way, maybe less stress. They didn't have to work too hard. Yeah, yeah. less stress, better food, Quiet. calmness, yeah. sleep. There were plenty of monks around who were there when that was buried. Any one of them could have told her about the stash, about the sword they saw going into the ground. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's totally possible. However, you know the telephone game. If that gets out, she sent back for a sword buried in the ground. It came out and had five crosses on it. You can see how that would go. Oh, yeah, it looks legit. And it made Joan believed it, I guess. It was legit. But this is an area where there's a lot of battles going on. A lot of people are killed in this area. So maybe one of them dropped his sword, either dying or running away. Maybe? I don't know. The, the relic hunter seems yeah, more straightforward. I know. I like this. Yeah, I, I do. Because it would get it under the ground. So whatever. <laughs> the legend grows. The Dauphin had some armor made for her, and um, the call for soldiers went out. So you think, oh, like 10 guys are going to come, 100 guys? No. Thousands of guys show up. 10, 12,000, somewhere in that neighborhood. Because I think this is the point. The word has gotten out enough about her that people are looking at her saying, yes, she is going to save us. She was this huge morale booster for the remaining French. These guys had given up like a little league team that was 10 points behind. Their heads were hanging down. They were scuffing their feet in the dirt. And along comes this person, this person that four months ago had been spinning wool in some obscure village with this... Hope, like the rally, her rally caps made of metal. Otherwise, the baseball reference stands. <laughs> her confidence was just unshakable. You wanted to believe her. And the extreme unlikeliness made her believable. If it had been a man, here's my own personal belief. It, if it had been a man, especially a man of higher birth, mm-hmm. I think it would have been put down to ambition. Oh, look, you know, Prince so-and-so wants to be a big man now. But, like, a woman who flat out said, it's not my will to be here. God sent me. Huh. That motivation boggled people, I think, a little bit. Wouldn't it you? Yeah. (laughs) So maybe we can do this, you guys. So Joan had been practicing with lances and writing and cannons. 
cannon. She loves a cannon. <laughs> she let people teach her. And the thing is, she did not pretend to know more about anything. She accepted knowledge gratefully. She listened. She took in what people said. Her abilities impressed everyone. And her humbleness with which she learned things impressed everyone. But so, again, like, I know I don't belong here. Please help me. Teach me stuff. And don't hurt me. And don't hurt me. <laughs> so she's good at fighting, and she's super good at troop morale. So you'd be a yeah. fool not to let her go to Orleans. These dudes are ready to go. Let's just, why not send them? Yeah, she's not the lead. I mean, you always think of Joan of Arc leading the march, you know, in charge. But she wasn't at that point. She was one of a group. And she was down as far as the ladder of influence goes. Yes. Well, the Siege of Orleans had, at this point, become... A waiting game. While Joan had been back months ago, meeting with people, convincing people, the active part of this siege had happened. Bridges destroyed, towers taken, gunpowder exploding, and now it was a waiting game. The defenders were too strong for the English to bust in. The English had cut off supplies for the most part. There was a few trickle-in points. But a lot of them had been sent away. It's like, oh, we're going to win this. We have them surrounded. They can't get any supplies. We're just going to wait them out. So at some point, the defenders are a little greater than the attackers. Well, and the defenders were the ones that had pulled down the bridge in the first place, like Neville Longbottom and Harry Potter pulling down that bridge. And from what I hear right now, some of you are going to take a drink because I've made a Harry Potter reference. You're welcome. They never did have quite enough men to go all the way around the town the attackers, and they can't quite man the back of the town. <laughs> so they just, like, show a force on the main road, and, and who was going to run out of food or will first? That's where we are right now. Right. We're going to sit here and try to block stuff coming in. And the defenders are like, oh, yeah? Well, we're going to sit here behind the walls, and we're going to try to get stuff in. It's a fun game. Yeah. Let's keep playing it. So Joan and her people are sent to get the things in and kind of unclog this mess. I love this. This is the thing I just that she does. She writes a letter. Well, she dictates it because she can't write. But she writes a letter to the English commander pretty much saying, hey, do the right thing. Give up France. Apologize for occupying it. And the maid will help make peace. Well, it was only sporting to give him a chance to leave before the hellfire rained down. But for all I know, they used that piece of paper to wipe their bombs because they didn't budge. No. Nothing. So here comes Joan with wagon after wagon after wagon of supplies, of weapons, of men's, of men's, of men's, of, <laughs> uh, of weapons, of priests. And that flag, that three by 12 foot Flag, white, with golden lilies, Jesus in the middle, holding the world with an angel on each side, fluttering in the wind, which put joy in the heart of all that saw it. It was kind of like her pom-pom. Yay! France! <laughs> so they went around the back way, forded the river, and took advantage of a diversion that was created by some citizens. They just walked right in. Yeah, <laughs> the siege of Orléans. She just walked in. Through the Burgundian Gate. Hey, why don't we take this big door right here? <laughs> now, some people attribute this to miracles. There's also another telephone gossip. She made the water rise so the supplies could go down the river. The supplies went across the river. They didn't go down the, the river. The wind changed direction. I read that. Yeah. Yeah. No. Either it did or it didn't. It might have. Fords are never straightforward, but once you're across, that's just the end of it. Well, we're not going to give you a blow-by-blow of the siege warfare here, but you should know the following things. The big boss, charmingly named the Bastard of Orléans, 
um, cousin to the Dauphin was, he's the big cheese and he is in opposition to her tactics the whole time. She, she was kind of like, okay, I've delivered the wagons. Let's go around and fight them. And he's like, really? No, we're in. This is a miracle. We've delivered the supplies. We're already ahead of the game. You know, we gotta have some meetings. We gotta think of what to do. And Jonah's like, meetings are what you got you here in the first place, Chachi. We're gonna go out and fight. This is where they are butting heads at every, okay. I mean, he used to have strategy meetings where she was not invited. My mission is from God. Your tactics don't mean anything to me. The French soldiers were on her side. They're right there! They saw her! Let's go they get them! her! Yes! They wanted to fight! They're fired up! And so Joan then tried, since the French bosses weren't listening to her, to try to provoke the English into going ahead and attacking so there could be a fight. Finally, I swear people called him the bastard. I'm not being... That's his name. Henry the Fat. He was the bastard. And actually, it was kind of a mark of respect because it meant he is the king's family. Right. So, anyway, so when I say the bastard, I assure you, that's his name. (laughs) So, so the bastard was kind of forced by troops wanting to fight. The unrest was growing among his troops. And it was like, oh, oh my God, okay, whatever. So, they had some victories. They went out the walls and... Got some victories, and now they're going to take the tower, the other end of that now useless bridge where all the English were dug in. It was a big, fat fortress. That's what it had been designed to be, and they were going to take it. It was carnage on all sides. Joan herself got an arrow between the, her neck and her shoulder. Yeah, there's like one spot in her armor where the, an arrow could have gone, and that's, I mean, it was just a lucky shot. But she goes, they haul her off the battlefield. And then she's back on it within a couple hours. You know what they put on to heal the wound? Olive oil mixed with lard. <laughs> Plugged it up? I don't know. I don't really know. I think you're not supposed to pull arrows out, right? And you know the only way? Since some of those arrows were held on by, the heads are held on the shaft by wax. Mm. So if you pull it out like in the movies, yeah. you're left with the, I mean, if that's fine with you, that the arrowhead's still in there, well, by all means, pull it out. But you know what they used to have to do is push it through. Yeah. And then I also, I pinned this picture, which is so sick, of an arrow remover. And basically, it's like a scissor with the pull, the blades on the outside. And so you stab next to the arrow with this sharp scissor, and then you pull open the legs and cut so that somebody could reach their freaking dirty, grimy, Never washed since last Christmas hand in there and haul out the arrowhead. It seems like a great situation to be in. So evidently, they pushed it the rest of the way through because that's the way to get it out unless you want to use that remover. So anyway, that's, I mean, it's no joke. It went in, like, they said yeah. six inches, which really does kind of put it near the back if you want to just push it the yeah, rest of the way Yeah, because she's out. a female. It's shorter than a man's shoulder. Mm. Yeah. So it was going badly. The bastard was for going back into town and regrouping, and Joan... With the arrow, as far as I know, still sticking out her body, came back out and had one of these conversations with her voice. She came back. She told him no, and she jammed that flag's pole into the ground, and everyone that was left yelled, you know, France, or whatever they yell. And before nightfall, they had captured this tower. And, you know, really, the town. Golly. So ten days after she got there, Joan of Arc, age 17, had done the impossible. She had broken the siege of Orléans. And what does a warrior do right after a great battle like this? Do you go to the pub and sing? Do you drink some things? Joan cried. She cried and cried. She cried over all the men who died, both English and French. She kept saying, I warned them to go, and they didn't go. Why didn't they go? I wish they had just left. Yeah, she went. She 
actually never battled. She didn't kill anybody in battle. She didn't shoot anything. She was just there to, as, as a figurehead, leader, moral support. A tactician, really. Cheerleader. But she wanted peace. She only had 2,000 men left. 2,000. After the 10 to 12 she had had. Imagine, just imagine if you're this reluctant actor in this scenario. You are a 17-year-old girl and you've just seen 10,000 people killed. What what you have made happen. You know you're sent by God, but you're still so upset. She's a human being. Yeah. The reviews went out all over Europe. So on the good side, um, she's prohibited the ruin of France. Oh, Virgin worthy of all praise, you're the beauty of all Christendom. She seems to have not come from this earth. And from the losers, the English, the followers of the fiend, the pucelle, used false enchantment and sorcery to remove the courage of our soldiers. Dudes, seriously, this last thing? Propaganda. Come on, guys, you were beaten by a girl. That's A girl who is now known... Still, by that name, La Pucelle d'Orléans, or the Maid of Orléans. Orléans is free. There's your sign, friends. Certification complete. But the voices had told her there was a part two. Remember there was a part two? There was a part two. She had to get Charles crowned. Now, at this point, French kings were traditionally crowned at Rheims. <laughs> That's R-E-I-M-S. Um, so you have to clear a path. You have, that's what Joan has to do. You have to clear a path to the town in question. And it is deep into English territory. So off she went, up and down the Loire River, kicking the English out, knocking the stuffing out of them. Le stuffing, I don't know what the <laughs> word is. Um, basically just clearing the valley of occupiers. The English were starting to think, you know what? Maybe we are on the wrong side. You're rank and file soldiers. Like, yeah. I don't know, man. We're getting our booties knocked around. I The cannon was one thing, but now they've got her. Oof. Mm. Now, Joan and some other captains, you know, the bastards, etc. The French soldiers had begun to revere her in the same way the English soldiers had kind of gotten a little trepidatious. Hardened skeptics like the bastard were all, she's proved this all works. We should listen to her at this point. Right. She had converted the men on the field that, Left her out of all those meetings. We're no longer leaving her out of the meetings, if you know what I mean. Right. She could have been the puppet before, but they had to agree. She was really aggressive. She was very brave. She was extremely inspirational to the troops. She would get them when they would be hating naughtily. She'd tell them that God doesn't like that. She would chase the prostitutes out of camp using the flat of her sword to hit them about the shoulders. Like, get out. She wouldn't let them... Um, loot. She wouldn't let them pillage. It's kind of like a bummer, I guess, in the grand scheme, if you if that's why you got into this game yeah. in the first place. But ultimately, you know, we run a respectable operation here. This is from God. It's kind of like when Snow White went to live with the dwarfs. They were kind of living in their frat house tree, and she came in and swept all the dirt out the door and told the little boys how they had to behave. Can I please add, think about her surrounded by hundreds of well, thousands of mm-hmm. soldiers, not notoriously known for their delicacy, for their behavior, for their etiquette. Something about her, something about her and her mission. They, they might have thought she was attractive. In fact, she was very charming. She was very attractive in the way that, like, people wanted to be around her. They wanted to see her, just to be in her orbit, kind of. But there was none of this creepy behavior that one would expect from soldiers. They saw her change her clothes. 
And there were just no feelings about mm-hmm. it, if you know what I mean. They turned their heads. And they would say there's there's a light that comes from her. Yeah. Butterflies fall over as she walks. Now, that last thing <laughs> might have been hyperbole. I'm just bit. saying. But, you know what? The French are winning. They're winning battles. They're empowered by those victories. So whatever is making that happen, it's like a football team. They don't want to give up their... Um, Mascot. Yes. (laughs) There's certain superstitions they just don't want to mess with. So they chased the English practically back to Paris. Towns along the route surrendered themselves to Joan's forces as she passed. That's kind of smart. Yeah. One resisted. She set up a siege. They're like, never mind. Forget it. (laughs) Fair enough. Forget it. I'm opening the, I'm opening the gates. Get the future king in here. So it was time to travel to Rennes, the traditional place to crown French kings. But it must be said that the Dauphin's advisors, people, you know, that are at court, courtiers are kind of sucky in all eras at all times. But they did not fight with Joan. They were still skeptical. They were urging him to wait. It's the city is deep in enemy territory. True. There are towns between there and here that aren't loyal to you. Also true. Joan said, the time is now. Don't worry. God has told me I am to see you crowned. We're ready to go. Please follow me, sir. Sire. So there's this grand caravan. The interesting thing about it is it was all volunteers because the coffers were empty. You know, everybody volunteered, but it was a royal caravan that went up the road far to Han. (laughs) Well, and the Dauphin followed Joan's advice. Can you see the lemony faces? Of his advisors. Can you see them? Joan had her enemies now. Oh, yes, she did. But she smoothed the way. She sent letters. She waved her standard. And at last, on Sunday, the 17th of July, 1429, the Dauphin became King Charles VII of France. Joan, in full armor and with her battered flag, stood by his side. And when it was done... She knelt in front of him and cried, telling him God's will had been done. She had completed her mission. Do you remember she first saw this guy in her whole life only in February? That's five months ago. And it was only two months between Orléans and Rennes. That's it. Two months. This is a fast-moving story. That's why we have to keep referring to months. <laughs> so, well, there it is, the pinnacle. So what should we read into the fact that she was not invited to the celebratory banquet afterward? What should we read into that? I'm just going to leave that there. It's the end of her voice-authorized mission statements. So she perhaps ought to have packed up and gone home. But she didn't. Joan had decided to go off and route the English out of Paris. This is a heavily fortified town at this time. This isn't your small town earthwork fortress with reluctant soldiers staying behind when the real army leaves. This is the walls of Paris were 24 feet high. There was a 32 foot wide moat around it. There were towers. There were guns. There were real soldiers there. And a lot of them. I think it needs to be said that the voices stopped before she went to Paris. There's no voices. I guess I should go to Paris? Mm. Well, and she said later in her trial that she had not followed God's voice to Paris. She had Mm -hmm. followed the voices of men. Mm -hmm. She left the king with the courtiers. This is her big problem. Diplomacy. They said diplomacy, sire. Let's make some treaties. A concession here. Bit of territory here. 
Joan was off filling the moat with sticks up in Paris when she got a crossbow bolt in the thigh. Now that could be a very serious wound. There is a major artery right there, and you could bleed to death. Well, her soldiers hauled her out of there with her screaming at them to make sure someone takes my place, you know. And the next thing she knew, her troops had left the battle, and worse, the king had ordered her to stand down until he could hold a council meeting. Yeah, he was ready to put a kibosh on her on her strategy, and he wanted to go for diplomacy, where Joan was still, even though she's got this wound, wants to fight. She thinks fighting is the way. The king thinks, no, we need to talk it out. Can do this without slaughter. Ugh, committees, committees. But anyway, yes. her soldiers were under no delusions that Paris was going to fall in one day. This is a different game. They were fine with it. She seemed to have a plan. She had done a lot of recon. She had tested the walls in lots of locations. She had found some weaknesses. I mean, there was a definite tactical plan for Paris that her loyalty to her troops and the reverse was just unswaying. The fear of her within the walls was still strong, but the king, while she rebounded from this really very grave wound, sent her fellow captains away, forbade them to talk to her, disbanded her own main army, and really relegated her to a secondary position in what was left. He thought she was a loose cannon at this point. She endured some more defeats, mostly, it seems, just due to the king not sending her any supplies, like Now, he did send her a letter stating he'd made her and her descendants nobles. Mm. And he asked her what she wanted as a reward for all her good service. And she said that she would like her town not to ever have to pay taxes. And he said, okay, it was like her gold watch, he thought. And you should note that that town, Domremy, did not, in fact, pay taxes to any French king until... The French Revolution happened, and those people said, we don't care what kings have told you. Kings, eh, you're going to start paying taxes. So that was a long stretch of no taxes. Thanks, Joan of Arc. Yeah. Actually, her family was given um, the surname de Lee, the lilies. Because that was what was on her banner. Uh, right. This episode is brought to you by Legacy Box. And as regular listeners of the History Chicks know, this past year we lost my mother. And it was while cleaning out her things in her closet, we came across film reels and photos of our mother as a young woman that we'd never seen before. But all the color photos were starting to degrade. And my siblings and I were so excited to be able to send all of these memories into Legacy Box for preservation. In addition, they turn it into some media that we can actually watch. They're was a point when we were looking at the refreshed media that several of us were holding hands on the sofa and we didn't even realize that we were doing it. And you yourselves could be the family hero by preserving your family's memories in this way. What you do is you send your legacy box full of your home memories and photos. They'll do the rest. They professionally digitize all of your family's special moments onto a thumb drive, digital download, or DVD. You do receive all your original photos back along with digital copies. 
Legacy Box is the world's largest, most trusted digitizer of home movies and photos. Over 450,000 families have trusted Legacy Box with their memories. They have over a decade of experience, and all the work is done by hand right here in the USA. There's never been a better time to digitally preserve your memories. Visit LegacyBox.com today to get started. For a limited time, they're offering our listeners an exclusive discount. You go to LegacyBox.com chicks to get 40% off your first order. Go to LegacyBox.com chicks and save 40% today. Get started preserving your past. Well, for Joan, all this, the taxes, the nobility, was like a participant ribbon at field day. Was the king she had fought so hard to put on the throne just going to sit there and let the Burgundians, boo, and English take it all back? I mean, already she'd heard some towns she'd turned were under siege again, and he forbade her to go. He, like, literally, specifically told her, no, do not go. We know her well enough to know what happened. Joan packed up and went to fight, attracting soldiers as she went. Joan headed to assist a specific walled town called Compiègne. She, typically, went outside the wall to fight the Burgundians outside the walls and was captured in May of 1430. She was 18 years old. She was really pulled off of her horse. She generally took the most dangerous position and rode at the end of the line of soldiers, and that's what got her because she had no protection. And they kind of just reached up and yanked her off her horse. And like it was a game of tag or something, you know, capture the flag. They captured the Joan. They literally did capture the flag. The glee could not be held back. I mean, she was paraded as a prisoner all over creation. We talked about this during the Cleopatra episode. It was called a triumph. It was demoralizing her supporters. Although, not Compiègne, which ended up winning later, Mm -hmm. by the way. They held out, but they had her now. They had her. The Burgundians had her. When she was first held in captivity, her captors thought that she'd make a nice ransom for them. But it didn't work out. Charles was not going to pay it. And her parents are peasants. And her whole village put together wouldn't come up with this ransom. And there's no, you know, Kickstarter. She can't ask for, hey, a penny per peasant can get me there to my goal. No, nothing. But we do know somebody who does have a lot of money. A bishop by the name of Pierre Cochon said, hey, why don't we, England, get together and buy Joan of Arc? Not pay a ransom, because if we paid a ransom, she would be a political uh, war prisoner and we'd have to release her. But we will buy her from her captors and then we will have her. 10,000 livres, which is really hard to um, get. Uh, Normally, I could just, like, look it up. Oh, that'll be this in modern day. Now, all I can say is that one livre is 240 pennies, and the average hardworking 14-hour-a-day craftsman earned four pennies a day. So we're looking at years' worth of work for a craftsman flat out would not even equal this ransom. I saw, and I, I did the same thing you did, trying to find a conversion, and it was really difficult, but about a half a million dollars, give or take, mm-hmm. a few hundred thousand um, in either direction, but they put got it together, and they, they purchased her and took her into captivity. When she first heard that she was going to be turned over to England, she figured out a way to jump from a tower. 
but she survived. Later, everyone's like, are you trying to commit suicide? You're telling me you thought you would survive? Well, okay, A, I did survive, so obviously it's not completely crazy, yeah. you know. And B, I put myself in God's hands. But, you know, I leaped. I'm in your hands. He saved me. And if you I'm don't, ex- and if you don't expect a prisoner to want to escape, that's what I was supposed to do. Any prisoner would want to escape. So by December, she was in Rouen, the English capital in France, and she was charged with heresy. Heresy is the belief against standard religious doctrine. And now I want you to picture a big old steam locomotive, perhaps the Hogwarts Express. Drink. Because what happens now is railroading. Plain and simple. A big old unfortunate series of events. So first came the background check. Then the virginity check. Again. Why? Don't know. And the investigator came back and said, I have found nothing that I would not like to have found out about my own sister. So they did not pay him. Red flag. (laughs) Do you see where this is going? Yeah. Well, I know. Spoiler alert, I know the ending. (laughs) Spoiler alert, I think everybody knows the ending. The main religious authority figure uh, left town so he wouldn't have to be a party to this sham until he was forced back violently. They made him come mm-hmm. back at knife point, basically. Yeah, there was. this was not just a steam locomotive. This was a dirty old steam locomotive. They're paying off judges. They're paying off assessors. They're paying off anybody that they can to get Joan on trial, tried as quickly as possible, and taken care of. So there was a problem with the oath. They kept asking her, do you promise to answer the questions we pose? And she said, well, I don't know what questions you're going to ask. Maybe there'll be some things I don't want to tell you. Well, that's honest. Yeah. She's always been honest. Why should that surprise anybody? You can't really argue with that, but that was not what she's supposed to say. Eleven sessions worth of badgering, questions of theology designed to trap her, questions of witchcraft, um, so many questions about her visions, like what clothes did they wear? Well, then what accent do they speak with? And always, always, always back to her wearing men's clothes. They had a problem with her wearing men's clothes. I need them, she said, to protect me from my guards. There's a vest and there's hose called hosen tied together with cords, like tied together, together to protect areas. Well, a woman's dress would be open at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Even though she is being tried by the church, she should be held in a church-run prison, but she's sent to a secular prison. She's supposed to be in a church-run prison overseen by nuns. She's in the general population of a regular prison. Chained to the wall because of her leap from the tower. They think she's a flight risk, so they've chained her to the wall. So she's basically defenseless in women's clothes, and I I cannot understand why they didn't comprehend. Well, they didn't want to comprehend. Mm-mm. They were like, whatever, dress like a woman or you're guilty of heresy. Now, this is biblically based. There is a section in, I think it's Deuteronomy, that says that women are not to dress as men. That's the only hook that they had to hang their hat on. So they kept bringing it up. And had a terrible time in prison as a result. During her imprisonment, her conditions were increasingly horrible. She fell very ill a couple of times, but her captors wanted to keep her alive so they could kill her. But she was fed like a thin soup and bones left over from noblemen's dinners and water, just enough to keep her alive. She's, like Beckett said, held in chains and deprived of light and denied, most importantly, her sacraments and her religion. She couldn't go to confession and she couldn't receive communion. This was a huge blow. 
Now she's not hearing her voices. She's denied the faith that she's... This is this huge challenge for her. And they've taken to questioning her in that prison cell. So like a whole bunch of guys in a tiny cell at her all the time, yelling, 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 trying to trip her up. We'll link you up to her testimony on our show notes. But you can see that she's, even if you skim through it, that she stays really true to herself and very sharp of mind throughout the entire interrogation. And to know that in the background all this is going on, she's being menaced by guards at night who want to ruin her consecrated virginity, to basically ruin her reputation, to ruin her last authority on earth, etc. It's just not good. Well, she was taken to, literally taken to a scaffold and told to renounce her visions and stop wearing men's clothes because, honestly, they tried to pin 70 charges on her. And they couldn't get her on any of them. Mm -hmm. So this was the last thing they had. She did agree, under all this duress, to do what they said. They presented her with a paper that had a very short confession on it that she believed said, I will renounce my that I had my visions, and I will never wear men's clothing again. That's it. So she signs it. Thinking it would improve her situation. But it really didn't. The kind of tortuous confinement continued Her voices appeared to her again, she said, and they scolded her for renouncing them. They scolded her for renouncing God's message to her, etc. And so four days after she had given that confession, she renounced that part of her confession. And then, unfortunately, the guards decided, or were ordered, to play a trick upon her, and they ended up seizing her dress. And she didn't have anything to wear. And And they they offered her men's clothing, which... It was, she had a choice to have these men on her or put on their clothes. So she did. And the moment she did, they said, oh, you are a relapsed heretic. Sentence, death. Now, why did they put her through all this? Well, when they ca- why when they captured her on the battlefield did they not just kill her? They didn't want a martyr. They thought she might be more powerful as a symbol by dying than just fading in her influence. So they needed to ruin her reputation first. And by ruining her reputation... Perhaps it would also ruin Charles's reputation, giving them even a further stronghold and taking over France. Well, so much for that. You're to be burned at the stake. The very next day, Joan begged to be beheaded, and her English guards laughed while she cried. One of them did slip her a wooden cross he'd tied together. Haphazard, you're not going to have a workshop at your disposal. He tied two sticks together and gave them to her, you know. That is like the smallest kindness, but I think it might have meant the most to her. Yeah, she tucked it into into her dress and against her heart, close to her. They put a paper cone hat on her that said, um, heretic, relapsed apostate, idolatrous, and tied her to the stake. Now, sometimes, as the smoke went up, the executioner would take pity on the person at the stake and strangle them before the pain began. Uh, it was kind of considered an act of mercy. Um, but he was literally forbidden to do this in Joan's case. He was not allowed to do it. Even if his heart said to do it, he was not allowed to do it. Someone in the crowd, as the flames went up, held up a crucifix high in the air at her eye level so she could see it. It's like the only comfort they could give her. And she called and she called for St. Michael. Please, St. Catherine, St. Margaret, deliver me. You know, she called and called for them and they didn't come. And then she called for Jesus and died. The executioner later claimed that her heart had survived the fire in the not very likely department, but her ashes were reburned and thrown in the river. It's possible someone smuggled a bone or two out. There's a couple of bones in Chinon that were 
supposed to be hers, but they have recently, as of 2013, Mm -hmm. proven to be, in fact, mummy and chicken bones. Mummy? Well, mummia, M-U-M-I-A, was an ingredient in old medicine. I see. And so there were mummy bones laying around available for the, say, 17th, 18th century Mm -hmm. wag to make some fake relics out of. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Yep. Um, So it's not as obscure as now. Like, where are you going to get a mummy bone now? Mm -hmm. Well, then you just go down to the apothecary. Right. You know. (laughs) CVS has them. CVS, yes. (laughs) So... All traces of the actual Joan are gone, but not the reputation. And immediately, of course, Charles felt, quote, bitter grief, for which I tell him to bite me. (laughs) I was going to say too freaking bad, but yeah. Well, there you go. I'm just like, dude, you did nothing. You stifled her. You betrayed her. Surely you could scrape together 10,000 livres. Your dudes probably have it in their pocket to gamble with or something. Do you know what I mean? Well, if he says he's... His heart is heavy because of it. Then her supporters say, oh, he's on our side. I guess slightly in his defense, whatever. You know, he couldn't really do anything for a while. He did not capture Rouen, where all the papers were, in question, until 1449. And in 1450, as soon as he could, this is 19 years later, he ordered an investigation. What happened here? Get these papers out and look, would you? And a couple years later, the Pope authorized a retrial, an official retrial, also at the request of her mother. I know. I thought, I love that. Her mom worked all those years. She talked to whoever she could trying to get her daughter's convic- conviction overturned. And finally, it did. 25 years after she died, her conviction was indeed overturned and she was proclaimed innocent. So thorough. Six years of investigations, which is why we know so much about Joan of Arc. They talked to everyone. They asked every question. They wrote it all down. It's in a safe place. This has largely survived. At the end of everything, in 1456, it was declared Joan of Arc was a martyr for the faith, and her mother lived to see it. Her mother lived to see her daughter's reputation restored. The city of Orléans hadn't waited, mind you. They had commemorated the day of her death every year since it happened. So, ten points for the city of Orléans for not betraying her like all other people did. Now, historians might just be the cause of Joan's rise to sainthood. It was their retelling of her story in the 1800s. She became kind of a thing. You know, there's eras when, say, King Tut became famous, or Cleopatra, or Nefertiti. You know, like, things get discovered, things get unearthed, and all of a sudden, it's awesome again, and everyone's talking about it. Even World War One soldiers took replicas of her flag into battle with them. French soldiers. There were so many groups that used her as their symbol, even ones that she would have not even closely related. Um, the transgender community, because she was a crossdresser. The religious right and the left-leaning w, uh, World War II resistance fighters both used her as a symbol. And, of course, France. She was canonized as a saint in 1920, and there are photographs of that ceremony. We'll put those in the show notes. Her feast day is May 30th. There were 60 to 70,000 people at her ceremony in Rome. In the 1920s. In the 1920s. And then about that time, her hair cut, because she had the boy cut, the bowl cut, the crop, the bob, started to become popular. It's all credited to a, a hairstylist in Paris, of course it is. Um, but yeah, the whole, the 1920s World War, 
one era was very big for Joan of Arc and her reputation and the the number of books written about her, etc. Well, having a woman in a powerful position at that time in history. Suffrages. Yes. That was important. So keep her at the front of the chatter chain. Mm-hmm. And now we've reached the end of the story of Joan of Arc, the maid of Orléans, La Pucelle, warrior for France, symbol of France. This episode is dedicated to and has been requested by Leon Dolan of the Satellite Sisters and Satellite Sisters podcast, who was so helpful to us at the beginning, gave us great support, encouragement, uh, kick in the booty a couple times. Um, so thank you for all of that. <laughs> Sometimes that's what we need, a little tough love. Joan of Arc gave it to France and Leon gave it to us. So we sincerely say thank you and dedicate this episode to you. And now let's talk about media. Let's start with the Middle Ages. There's a really neat video on YouTube, and of course everything will link you up in our show notes, but it's the Middle Ages in three and a half minutes, and it's all drawn. It's really cute. It's really cute, and you get a nice overview of that whole time period. Okay, so I'm going to come in with a lowbrow suggestion. There is, keep in mind, not G-rated, let me front load that, not safe for Maybe not safe for work, depending on where you work. Use your best judgment. Epic Rap Battles of History on YouTube. Uh, it is Joan of Arc versus Miley Cyrus. My favorite line is, Je suis le fil en feu, call me Katniss Everdeen, which means I'm the girl on fire, call me Katniss Everdeen. I laughed and laughed. <laughs> yeah, it was, that's a good one. So, hilarious. And, as always, Horrible Histories does a Joan of Arc. Um, that's the classic. And Supersizers Go does Medieval. You know what? We, Watch we, them all. I know. We shouldn't have to keep telling you to go look at these. You I wish those guys were my friends. Yeah, Let's work too. on that. Does anyone know them? I follow them on Twitter. Oh, I love them so. <laughs> there was a really cool blog I came across called In Joan of Arc's Footsteps. We'll post a link. It's simply a woman and her husband follow Joan of Arc's journey, post pictures and like things they saw and things they thought about. It's a common enough trip among among Catholic tourists mm-hmm. or history tourists. Um, there's a pretty popular reporter on telegraph.com.uk that kind of did the same journey. So it's neat to see two different perspectives. He's a little more uh, skeptical than the couple in the first blog. So it's good to see both perspectives. And there's a really good outline of the Hundred Years War. Not funny at all, but really informative <laughs> on bbc.co.uk. We'll post links, so I'm not going to say the whole link. It's just you know, too long. Since you're flipping around on the web, read the trial notes online at the Joan of Arc Center. Joan of Arc Center is a really all-encompassing fan site for Joan of Arc. She could do no wrong with the people that run it. It's kind of interesting to play around on there and read their perspective and see all the stuff. So if you want to geek out on Joan of Arc, you got to go there. No, just some movies and TV real quick. Um, Joan of Arcadia. Remember that from I TV? I do remember. I remember watching it. It was from the 90s. So that couldn't be more clearly Joan of Arc in modern times. Uh, you know, she hears the voice of God, blah, blah, blah. So Joan of Arcadia, there's three seasons of it. I don't think it's on Netflix streaming, um, um, but there's definitely box sets available if, uh, if you have nostalgic feelings for Joan of Arcadia. There's also a miniseries that also is not on Netflix streaming. It might be on Hulu. You can get the Netflix DVD unless your kids mess with your queue and you're expecting it and you get something else Mm. several times. (laughs) But um, it actually has Neil Patrick Harris in it. Is this the Lily Sobieski thing? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. With Olivia Dukakis. 
I mean, it's got a huge cast. Shirley MacLaine? Neil Patrick Harris is Charles. I have to tell you, of the two major ones, the other one being The Messenger with Mila mm-hmm. Jovovich. Right. Yes. Um, I actually liked that one better. I have to tell you, critics didn't love either one of them so mm-hmm. awesomely, but Mila Jovovich, to me, seemed a lot more like Joan of Arc the way that I'm remembering her than Lily Sobieski did. I totally agree with you. I think the production values on it are better, too, and you know how we are about production values. <laughs> right before they did that movie, they did The Fifth Element. Nothing to do with this subject whatsoever, <laughs> but Mila Jovovich and the director worked on Fifth Element, and that is one of our household's favorite go-to, like... What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? We always find Fifth Element turned on. It's really an interesting movie, too. And if your go-to movie is Being John Malkovich, he's also in it. <laughs> there <laughs> <Thanks>, you go. Charles. <laughs> um, so for even more low brownness, why don't we go with Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Where Let's jo- go! <laughs> where Joan of Arc does aerobics. <laughs> That's her main contribution to the entire movie, by the yeah. way. And then even further back, and many of you will not have ever seen this, Oh, God, with George Burns and John Denver, where God appears to, I want to call him a grocery store manager. I can't really remember. I was yeah, seven. Let me just say, yeah, I was a I long time ago. But um, it's it's kind of the Joan of Arc story for modern times. God appears in court at one time and swears, so help me me. That's the <laughs> only thing I really remember. If you want to go back even farther, and I got this one from Netflix before my kids mess with the... Q. Um, the Passion of Joan of Arc, which is billed as the one of the greatest movies of all time. It's a silent movie. There's a soundtrack that goes with it that was put in afterwards, and it's this very dramatic, operatic. It, it's very violent. I mean, for a, for a silent film with, you know, silent film production values, I would give it a recommendation because it's it's short. It doesn't take you very long to re- watch it. There is a but- Simpsons episode in which Lisa finds a book of famous stories, and Joan of Arc is one of them, so it gets reenacted, Simpsons-wise. The Simpsons cover every dang thing, but we'll provide you a link to that episode, too. Okay, so books. There are a couple books that I particularly liked to use as my research, but the very first one I want to cover... It's kind of a special one. It's written by Mark Twain, believe it or not, in that era of Joan of Arc coming back to the forefront. Perfect timing. It's called Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. And it was, quote, written by a clerk who was told all these stories by Joan of Arc, who is, of course, famously not able to read and write. The character of Joan of Arc was based on his daughter Susie who died at 24, who loved Joan of Arc and loved her story. He says that it was his best work. And he it does. took him 14 years to write it. It is available on the Gutenberg, so you can read it online. He's been kind of obsessed with Joan of Arc since he was a child, and he found this page out of a book and read it. And he said to his brother, is this a real person? It was, the story mm-hmm. was so good. It's from a childhood obsession. I love it. It's not humorous, like not his usual material. People were all confused by it. Yeah, the, critically, it wasn't actually as popular as he had it. But I think knowing the backstory makes it a better book. While you're at the Gutenberg Project, flip on over to George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. It's a play, and you could read it fairly quickly. Um, it's classic, of course, because it's on the Gutenberg Project. Less classic, perhaps, but a great book, and I got a lot of information out of it. It goes into a little more detail on... The campaigns, which we really didn't feel like we could do audio version-wise without, you know, there's a lot of maps. There's um, maps of Orléans, where the streets are laid out, etc. It's called Joan of Arc, A Military Leader by Kelly DeVries. 
and it does not really cover the trial, the retrial, the nullification. Doesn't really cover her childhood, but that whole middle period in her glory, it's a very good source for that. Also, there's an alternate history, keep in mind, alternate history, that paints Joan of Arc partnered with a queen as a secret messenger for some kind of agenda she's got. So just know that that's, you know, it's not canon. It's called The Maid and the Queen by Nancy Goldstone. I thought that this was a well-researched and it's not a hard read. There's not a lot of technical, especially military information here, but it's Joan, The Mysterious Life of the Heretic Who Became a Saint by Donald Spato, and he he references quite a few uh, Joan of Arc scholars throughout it. So it's a very simple, detailed read of her life. I, li- I really like that one. I had that one, too. Did you like it? Yeah, and it's overdue at the library. Yeah, yes. my, Oh, my gosh. All my books are so overdue. I mm. am going to have to bring in a wheelbarrow full of pennies. Uh, also, um, Joan of Arc, The Legend and the Reality by Francis Geis, I thought was a good reference book and for the kids once again you can't go wrong with the dk biographies which are photographic stories of life which is kind of funny because nobody knows exactly what joan of arc looked like so to have photographs (laughs) it's not actually photographs of her there's a lot of paintings and um art yeah, I, you know, we never mentioned that, that nobody right. really knows what she looked like. I mean, you know, everybody knows in their mind now what she looks like. She's got dark hair, caught in a kind of unfortunate bowl cut situation. You know, mm-hmm. she's thin, she's tiny, etc. but nobody really knows. And she's probably a little bit more muscular than and bigger than they give her credit for because she's fairly strong. You know, you just to walk around in the in the armor, which isn't as heavy as we think it is, but it's still heavy. All that time carrying that banner in the air. I mean, her muscle on her right arm must have been amazing. Now, Joan of Arc is not often depicted with a Popeye arm on the right side. Somehow, that doesn't fit. So that will about do it for Joan of Arc. Let's end with a quote from George Bernard Shaw's St. Joan. Joan said, I heard voices telling me what to do. They come from God. Robert said, they come from your imagination. Joan said, of course. That is how the message of God comes to us. Thanks for listening. Bye. TheHistoryChicks.com is the place to find images and links related to this episode or to donate to our ever-spiraling Overdue Library Book Fund. Join us on Facebook or you can banter with Susan on Twitter at TheHistoryChicks with an X. We have a board for every show over on Pinterest. As of this recording, we have 4,400 pins about everyone from Cleopatra to Clara Bow. And if you like the show, please spread the word. The music we use can be found at musicalley.com. Today's end song is the Ave Maria by Fool's Chaos with soprano Kelsey Mira. Mm-hmm.